we need to finish our study of biblical symbolism, how to interpret Bible symbols in a proper way. And uh, so we want to go on now to speak about time periods, and we're not going to deal much with this because we uh, had a whole principle that dealt with the year-day principle, remember that? Uh, time periods are also symbolic, that's all I'm going to say about that, because we dedicated two classes uh, to discuss this particular subject. Now the next point is that things and objects are also symbolic. Things and objects are also symbolic. Waters, what do waters represent? Multitudes, Multitudes nations, tongues and peoples, what kinds of peoples? People at enmity with the people of God. What do eyes represent? Eyes represent wisdom, absolutely. And you have some references there um, in Revelation 2 verse 18 and Ephesians 1 verse 18. You have examples of what eyes represent. And um, what animal do we use to represent wisdom? An owl. Why do we use an owl to represent wisdom? What is the predominant characteristic of an owl? Its eyes. See, so we have a remnant of that today. An owl has large eyes, and eyes represent wisdom. What does fire represent? Fire is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. There are many passages that deal with that. Um, what does the sun represent? The sun is a symbol of Jesus Christ. The sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. What does the forehead represent? The forehead represents your mind, because your mind is behind your forehead, your brain. So you can read these texts that are here. What do trees represent? Trees represent people. And uh, maybe it might be a good idea for us to read a couple of these verses, just for this point. Uh, go with me to Psalm 1, Psalm 1 and verses 1 to 3. Psalm 1 and verses 1 to 3. This is a passage that is very, very well known. Some people might have it memorized. It says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates day and night. And now comes the comparison. Now comes the symbol. He shall be like what? Like a tree. The word like is the key here. You're dealing with symbolism. He shall be like a tree. In what sense will he be like a tree? Is he going to have branches and leaves? Well, not literally, no. There's one particular aspect. It says, He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. What would the rivers of water represent? In this sense, rivers would represent the Holy Spirit, right? Fresh water. See, when it says that the harlot sits on many waters, it's, it's the waters of the raging sea. But fresh waters represent the Holy Spirit. Isn't that correct? Yes. So it says, um, He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of waters that bring forth its what? Its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. So in what sense is a tree compared to a righteous person? In two points. Number one, where does he get the, the strength to produce the fruit? From the water. And when he receives the water, he bears what? He bears fruit. 
Those are the two points of comparison. Now let's notice one other example here of a tree, Jeremiah 17. Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse 8 is another example. Uh, it says here, and let's read verse 7 for the context, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, and whose hope is in the Lord. For he shall be like what? He shall be like a tree, once again, planted by the waters, which spreads out its roots by the river, and will not fear when heat comes, but its leaf will be green, and will not be anxious in the year of drought, nor will cease from yielding fruit. The same basic idea, right? So in Revelation when it says that a third of the trees were destroyed in the trumpet series, you have to look for some place on planet earth where some, at some point a third of the trees were destroyed. Right? No. You have to look at a place where a third of God's people were mowed down. And what if it says, spare the trees? Well, it means it's spare the people, because trees are symbolic of people. And by the way, it can represent also a bad person. So it doesn't always represent God's people, it represents God's people. Sometimes and other times it, repent, it represents wicked people. Okay, now what does oil represent? Oil represents the Holy Spirit. What does clothing represent? Clothing represents righteousness. Uh, what does a sword represent? We covered this. It symbolizes God's Word, and it also symbolizes the authority of the civil power. What do horns represent? Kingdoms, or divisions of kingdoms. Stars represent what? Stars represent Christ, or they can represent God's people, or they can represent Lucifer depending on where they appear. And then on the next page you have mountains. What do mountains represent? Mountains represent kingdoms. So in Revelation 17, this beast that has seven heads, and the seven heads are seven mountains, what is represented by this? You don't even have to guess. Because in Revelation 17 it says, the seven heads are seven mountains, and they are seven kingdoms. So there you have the heads, mountains, and kingdoms. So you have the interpretation of what it means. Daniel 2, the stone becomes a mountain. What does that mean? Well, it's God's kingdom that fills the whole earth and lasts forever. And so whenever you find mountains in symbolic prophecy, it represents kingdoms. And this is the reason why the heads of the beast of Revelation 17 does not represent seven popes. These days people... People are saying, oh, you know, uh, the, the seven heads are seven popes, and then there's an eighth, and the eighth is Francis I. Well, the fact is that mountains don't represent individual uh, persons. Mountains represent kingdoms. And furthermore, uh, Revelation chapter 17 clearly says that number eight is of the seven. One of the seven. And Francis I is not one of the seven. But anyway, uh, some people take the seven heads to be seven popes, and then an eighth pope, which is the present pope. So basically they're saying the last pope is this one, 
and then comes the end of the world. That's pretty close to setting a date. Okay, let's go now to the next point. Colors are symbolic. What does white represent? Purity, light, righteousness. The robes that Adam and Eve wore in the Garden of Eden were white robes of light. Blue, what does blue represent? Blue represents truth as found in God's holy law. Let's, uh, let's go to Numbers 15 so that you can see an example of this. Numbers 15 verses 38 through 40. Numbers 15, 38 through 40. There you have a clear, clear example. Numbers 15, verse 38. This is what it says. Speak to the children of Israel. Tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations. And put a blue thread in the tassels of the corners, and you shall have the tassel that you may look upon it and remember all the commandments of the Lord and do them, and that you may not follow the harlotry to which your own heart and your own eyes are inclined. So why did God tell them to put blue tassels at the bottom of their garments? To remember God's commandments. So blue represents God's truth. And we have the saying, true blue. Have you ever heard of the expression, true blue? Because blue represents the truth. And you know, just as a sidelight, have you ever noticed that the Roman Catholic uh, priests in their vestments never use blue? They use scarlet. They use purple. Combined with white. But you'll never find them clothed in blue. Very, very interesting nuance. And then you have red. What does red represent? Sacrifice. It can represent the blood of Jesus, or it can represent the shed blood of the wicked. And you have Bible verses there. What does purple represent? It represents royalty. Remember that they put a robe of purple on Jesus, and then they mocked Him as a king? So in Revelation chapter 17 where it speaks about the harlot being clothed in purple and scarlet, it means that she considers herself a queen. She considers herself royalty and she rules over the waters and she rules over the kings of the earth. What does gold represent? Gold represents character. You know, uh, faith that works by love. And purifies the soul, as Ellen White says. And uh, you find this, for example, in the church of Laodicea. God says that He wants us to buy gold tried in the fire. Which is, which is character, which is especially love, the love of God in our lives. And then in Scripture, black or darkness represents sin, error, and the power of Satan. The powers of darkness. Okay, now let's go also to the next section. Places and directions of the compass are symbolic. <laughs> Even directions of the compass are symbolic. What does Sodom represent? We already dealt with this. Sodom represents a nation that has become very immoral, licentious. Did that happen during the French Revolution? 
Yes. And then you have Egypt. These are locations. Uh, was Egypt uh, an atheistic nation? Did it challenge the existence of the true God? It most certainly did. Who is the Lord? I don't know the Lord, and I'm not going to let His people go. Babylon. Is Babylon symbolic? Yes, we've already noticed that. How about Israel and Jerusalem when they're found in prophecy? Would those be symbolic? Of course they would be. How about the king of the north and the king of the south? Would, would those directions of the compass be symbolic? Of course. Are we to look for enemies that are going to attack Israel from the south and the north? You know, south of Israel was Egypt. So the speculation is that the Arabs, you know, represented by Egypt and the Arabic nations, are going to come in, they're going to attack Israel from the south. And then from, from the north, you're going to have the Russians, and, and you're going to have others who come from the north to attack literal Israel. Well, the fact is that in symbolic prophecy, the points of the compass become universalized. The north, in other words, is the place where Babylon comes from to attack Israel. And what is Babylon? Babylon is spiritual and global. How about the south? The south represents secularism or communism. It's the opposite of the king of the north. The king of the north is false religion and the king of the south is, is non-religion or adversarial to religion. And so, and so is that going to be a global phenomenon? Did the French Revolution cause that to be a global phenomenon? Absolutely. So south and north are not literal points of the compass in end time prophecy. They become symbolic of global worldwide systems. Is Israel centered in the Middle East? No. Listen folks, if Israel is not centered in the Middle East, neither is the king of the south nor the king of the north. Because the king of the south was Egypt and the king of the north was Babylon. So if you say that Babylon is symbolic and the king of the south, Egypt, is symbolic, you would have to say that Jerusalem is symbolic too. And also global and worldwide. Are you understanding that principle? It's a vital principle in the interpretation of Bible prophecy. Finally, the final point under symbolism is that actions are also symbolic. For example, the eating of the little book. We're going to study about uh, the Revelation 10 tomorrow. The eating of the little book. Is that a symbolic action? Of course it is. In fact, John is a representative of God's people. He's a representative person. We're going to notice that in our study tomorrow. He represents God's people symbolically. So when John is told to devour this book, which is Daniel 8 through 12, we'll, we're also going to study that this afternoon. The, the, the book that is found in Revelation chapter 10 is Daniel 8 through 12. The, the book of Daniel is composed of two books in one. Daniel 1 through 7 is one book, and Daniel 8 through 12 is another book. But they're both found in one book. Just like the Bible, you have 66 books, but you really have only one book. In Daniel, you have two books within one book. And, they, and the two parts, Daniel 1 through 7 and Daniel 8 through 12, can be clearly distinguished, even by language. Because Daniel 1 is the introduction. 
to the book, but beginning with Daniel 2 through Daniel 7, it's written in Aramaic, whereas Daniel 8 through 12 is written in Hebrew. Just the language itself tells us that there's a distinction between the first half of Daniel and the last half of Daniel as well. So uh, the little book that is being eaten in Revelation chapter 10 is Daniel 8 through 12, and we're going to find that the central theme of Daniel 8 through 12 is a 2300-day prophecy. You'll see that when we study it this afternoon. It's amazing. And so, and so this action, this symbolic action, is that John is representing God's church at this particular stage of history. And John is commanded to eat this little book, which is centered in the 2300-day prophecy. And so John eats the book, and when he eats the book, or he assimilates the message, you know, how do we devour a book? He's not talking about eating paper. You know, we devour a book because we read it. Have you ever devoured a book? Sometimes I'll find a book that's so interesting, I can't put it down. I've got to eat the whole thing in one sitting. Yeah? And so, and so he devours this book. Wow, it's exciting. And it's sweet in the mouth. In other words, the message from the book is a sweet message. But then in the aftermath, it gets to the belly. It becomes bitter. The message caused joy at first and then bitterness. So would you have to look in history at some point in history where there was a people who assimilated the message of the 2300 days and it was a sweet experience and then in the aftermath it turned bitter? Wow! The Millerite movement fits the description perfectly in every detail because the action of eating the book is a symbolic action. So even actions in Bible prophecy are symbolic. And then the final point, a woman who acts in an adulterous manner represents a church that has come into illicit relationships with the civil powers of the world. So actions are also of symbolic value. So I hope that these principles have helped us a little bit as we uh, struggle with Bible prophecy in helping us interpret the meaning of Bible symbols. Now what we want to do is go to the material, we're going to go to our next principle, and our next principle has to do with the importance of understanding the Hebrew sanctuary in order to understand Bible prophecy. And I'll read it from your syllabus, it's page 32 in your syllabus. It reads this way, Consider the importance of the sanctuary in the understanding of Bible prophecy. It is absolutely indispensable, and I underline the word indispensable, to understand the Hebrew sanctuary in order to comprehend the prophecies of Daniel and Revelation. You cannot understand Daniel and Revelation unless you understand the sanctuary. It's an impossibility. We're going to take a look at, in this material, particularly this chart that you have in the, in the handout that you received, it says salvation history and the sanctuary in Revelation. That's the one that you need to make reference to. And uh, we're going to read the description at the bottom so that you understand the chart. And then what we're going to do after you understand the chart, then we're going to go back to the beginning of this handout and we are going to go through 
the material step by step, which is a description of what we find in the chart. Now, um, let's take a look at this chart, um, and uh, let me explain a little bit about it. You look at the extreme left-hand side at the bottom, and you find that it says court. You see that there? Court. And what was in the court? The altar of sacrifice and the laver. Those represent the death and resurrection of Christ. Now where did that take place? On earth, right? So the line that you see at the bottom, the broken line at the bottom, represents the earth. And so you see there, Jesus is on earth. In Revelation 1 verse 5, it speaks about His death and His resurrection. And so Revelation actually begins with the work that Jesus performed in the court. But then you'll notice the ascending line on the left-hand side. Do you see it with the arrow going up? Jesus ascended to heaven. And where did He enter? See, the line above with the little boxes are heaven. So Jesus ascends to heaven. And where is He in Revelation 1 through 3? He is in the holy place. Where in the holy place specifically? What piece of furniture? He is at the candlesticks in Revelation 1 to 3. That's a central theme of Revelation 1 through 3. Then in Revelation 4 and 5, we're going we're to notice the reasons for this. Jesus is at the table of showbread. Now where was the showbread in the sanctuary? In the holy place. And then when you go to the beginning of the trumpet series, in Revelation 8, 2 through 5, Jesus is at the altar of incense. So in the series on the churches, the seals, and the trumpets, where is Jesus? Jesus is in the holy place. Now don't misunderstand. Towards the end of each series, Jesus goes into the most holy. But as He begins His ministration with the churches and the seals and the trumpets, Jesus is ministering in the holy place. In fact, the interesting thing is that every time you get to number 6 in the series of the churches, the seals and the trumpets, you have the most holy place that comes into view when you get to number 6. You say, how is that? In the churches, you come to number 6, it's the 6th church, Philadelphia. An open door is placed before them. The open door leads into the most holy place. When you come to the seals, and you come to the sixth seal, there you have a description of the sealing of the 144,000. The sealing takes place in the most holy place. And when you get to the trumpets, you have the little book episode, which is the 2300 day prophecy, which takes you into the most holy place. So in other words, number six in the series, always there's a transition from the holy into the most holy. But at the beginning of each series, Jesus is at the candlesticks, He's at the table of showbread, and then He is at the altar of incense. And then we continue down the line. You see, all of this is being done by Jesus in heaven, right? Are you able to follow along? Everything is being done by Jesus in heaven. Uh, you know, in Revelation 11, verse 19, what is opened? We studied this in prayer meeting last night. 
The temple of God is open in heaven. What is that temple? It's the most holy place is open, and the ark of His covenant is seen. Question. Could you ever make any sense out of this without the sanctuary? How could you understand the candlesticks without the sanctuary? How can you understand the table of showbread without the sanctuary? How can you understand the altar of incense without the sanctuary? How can you understand the opening of the door to the most holy place and seeing the Ark of the Covenant if you don't know the sanctuary? The whole book of Revelation is patterned after the Hebrew sanctuary in its proper order. And so in 1119, you have the Ark of the Covenant seen, the most holy place is open, and the judgment begins. Now when you get to Revelation 15, verse 1 and verses 5 through 8, the service in the most holy place comes to an end. And we studied that last evening. Remember what happens in Revelation chapter 15? Particularly verses 5 through 8? It says that the temple is filled with what? With smoke. And no longer can anyone enter the temple or the naos or the most holy place. There the temple is opened for the plague angels to come out, not for people to go in. In 1119, the whole, most holy place is opened so that people can go in and follow Jesus and His work in the most holy place. In Revelation 15, you can't follow Him in anymore. No one can enter. The temple is open so the plague angels can come out. So in chapter 15, the most holy place ministry comes to an end. Are you following the sanctuary here? Is the day of atonement going to end someday? You better believe it. And then notice in chapter 16 through chapter 18, you have the plagues, a description of the plagues. By the way, do you know where the plagues come from? They come from the most holy place. Do you know specifically where they come from? They come from the Ark of the Covenant. You say, how do you know that they come? What was in the Ark of the Covenant? The law. What has the world been doing? They've been trampling on God's law. So the Ark sends plagues. You say, where do you get that from? You remember the story of the Philistines? The uncircumcised Philistines. What does uncircumcised mean? It means that they were not part of God's chosen people. They were rebellious. They were among the wicked. And so they take the Ark of the Covenant with unholy hands. And what does the Ark do? The Ark starts pouring plagues out on them. Because they are tramplers of God's holy law. So the plagues come from the most holy place after probation closes. Are you following me? And so the plagues are poured out. And then when you get to Revelation 19, 1 through 10, God's people stand victorious in heaven. And they're singing a song of victory. Isn't that interesting? Now, there are many nuances in between these large segments. I'm only showing you the large sections that deal with the sanctuary. Uh, in our study tomorrow, we're going to take a look at the structure of Revelation 12 to 22. It's an amazing structure, intricate, beautiful, complex. When you look at all of the details that are 
in between all of these large segments. What I want you to see now is the progression of the sanctuary. And so God's people stand victorious in heaven, and then what do you have next? In Revelation 20, what do you have? You have the scapegoat ceremony. Was that at the conclusion of the Day of Atonement? Absolutely. The sanctuary was closed, and then the sins that had been cleansed from the sanctuary placed on the scapegoat in the sanctuary service. How can you understand Revelation 20 unless you understand Leviticus 16? You see, Revelation 20 is the scapegoat ceremony where the devil is bound to the earth for a thousand years. And then, of course, it all ends in Revelation 21 and 22 where God establishes or creates a new heavens and a new earth. And then the interesting thing is, do you notice that the arrow moves down? Revelation 21 and 22 should actually be down on the lower line. Jesus descends and the tabernacle, it says in Revelation 22 that the tabernacle of God is with men and He will dwell with them. So you've gone full circle. You've gone from the point of Jesus leaving the earth after His work in the court He's been at the candlesticks, he's been at the table of showbread, he's been at the altar of incense, the temple in heaven was open for the judgment, and then intercession in heaven ended, and then you have the time of trouble when the plagues are being poured out, then God's people stand victorious in heaven, and then the sins are placed upon the scapegoat, and the scapegoat is here for a thousand years, and then Jesus descends, and you have a new heavens and a new earth. All in the sanctuary. The book of Revelation is a book that portrays the exact order of the Hebrew sanctuary and all the steps that Jesus takes. Now, you notice that there's a broken line at the bottom. Do all of these things have a spiritual reality on earth while Jesus is in heaven? Do they have a spiritual reality? Does, does, uh, do the candlesticks have any spiritual reality? Do you believe that there really are candlesticks in heaven? Yes, I do. Because there you have the symbol and what the symbol represents. See, in heaven you have the reality and the shadow. <laughs> and so in heaven you have the candlestick and you also have the Holy Spirit who is represented by the candlestick or by the oil in the candlestick. In heaven you have really a table of showbread. But the reality to which the showbread points is there too. And you have an altar of incense. And the reality to which the altar of incense points is there too. You have a real Ark of the Covenant in heaven. Probably much larger than the one on earth because the one on earth was made to scale. But nevertheless you have an Ark of the Covenant there. In other words, in heaven you have the reality and the symbol. On earth you only have what is symbolized spiritually. So let me ask you this. Does the candlestick have any spiritual relevance to the church on earth? We're going to study that in a few moments. Yes. What does the candlestick represent symbolically? It represents the Holy Spirit imparted to the church so the church will shed light. What does the bread represent? 
the Word of God. See, spiritual on earth. What does the incense represent? Actually, the incense represents the merits of Christ mingled with the prayers of the saints. Revelation 8 makes that clear. The incense is the merits of Christ's blood that is mingled with our prayers. See, our prayers have no virtue. If we came to God in prayer without the cleansing of, without the fragrance of the incense, God would have to destroy us. But when our prayers are mingled with the righteousness of Christ, ah, our prayers are acceptable in the sight of God because of Jesus, not because of us. And so does the altar of incense have relevance, spiritual relevance for us? Of course it does. How about the Ark of the Covenant? Are we to proclaim God's law on earth? Are we to proclaim the Sabbath on earth? Are we to proclaim health reform on earth? Are we to proclaim the hour of God's judgment on earth? See, what is literal up there has spiritual significance here. Now when Jesus fills the temple with His glory, with smoke, so to speak, will that have any implications on earth? Of course. You see, when the temple, when nobody can enter the temple in heaven, that means that nobody on earth can enter the temple spiritually. Are you understanding the principle? Sometimes we focus so much on what Jesus does up there that we forget about what He's doing here. You see, there's another temple here. It's a spiritual temple. That's at the, the, the bottom of the line. You, you know, Jesus said, said, I am going, but He says, I will come to you. So how can Jesus say, you know, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world, and yet He can say to Peter, Peter, I'm going, and where I'm going now, you can't go with me. Is Jesus talking out of both sides of His mouth? No. What He's saying is that physically He is going to be in heaven, but spiritually, through the work of the Holy Spirit, He's going to be with us on earth. So where does the Antichrist sit? You know, the Antichrist, he can't take any position in the heavenly temple. So what does he do? He says, well, I can't take over the place in the heavenly temple, so the best I can do is take over the place on earth. And so he sits in the church. And he does his thing. That's 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. He sits in the temple of God, showing that he is God. And do you know what, whose position he's usurping? He's usurping the position of the Holy Spirit because the Pope was not left as Christ's representative. The Holy Spirit was. Are you with me? Now you understand the chart. So let's go to the description at the bottom of the chart and review to make sure, absolutely sure, that you understand uh, the, the meaning of this chart. Because next we're going to go to uh, the document itself and we're going to go step by step. Things to keep in mind as you study this chart. Number one, the book of Revelation is not written in strict chronological order. It functions on the principle of climax and anticlimax. It often presents flashbacks, flashbacks and foretastes. Let me illustrate that. And when we deal with literary structure matters, uh, you'll, it'll become clearer. Revelation 14, 1 through 5. 
It says there that the 144,000 stand victorious in Mount Zion with the Lamb. We have a problem. Because in Revelation 14, 6, the very next verse, through verse 12, you have the three angels' messages. So how could they be standing on Mount Zion with Jesus victorious if the three angels' messages haven't been proclaimed yet? Are you following me? It's because, it's, you know, in fact, Revelation 14, 1 through 5 really belongs with chapter 13. Because chapter 13, see, we need to, we need to understand this. I wish I had more time. You know, we could take, we could take just the, the, the total hours of this class just to study this one principle. I'm serious. I'm not exaggerating. Because Revelation is so intricate, and Daniel are, is so intricate, intricate, that it takes time to, to decode it. But once you do, oh wow, a whole panorama opens up to your view. Revelation 14, 1-5 belongs with chapter 13. You say, why? Because chapter 13 ends by speaking about the beast and his image imposing his mark. And whoever does not receive the mark will be killed. And so when Revelation 13 ends, you ask the question, okay, so there was this crisis. The beast imposed his mark, and the beast said that he would kill everyone who did not receive the mark or who did not worship the image. The question is, was there anybody who stood victorious? Chapter 14 says, yes, the 144,000. The climax is that there was a group that will stand on Mount Zion victorious over the beast, his image, his mark, and the number of his name. Is that making sense? Let's go to Revelation 15. I'll show you. Revelation chapter 15. And you're going to see that the 144,000 really are those that were victorious over the beast, his image, his mark, and the number of his name. So chapter 14, 1 through 5, really belongs to chapter 13. It's the climax to chapter 13. And it says there in Revelation 15, and verse 2, And I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire, and those who have the victory over the beast, over his image, over his mark, and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God, they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Is this a, Are these the same characteristics as the group in Revelation 14, 1-5? through 5? So did God have a victorious group? Yes, He did. There are several chapter divisions in Revelation that are wrongly divided. Of course, the translators... They translated, in the ones who, who created the chapter divisions, you know, they did the best they could. They didn't have the light that we have as Adventists. You know, another example is the one I gave in prayer meeting last night. Revelation 11 verse 1 belongs with chapter 10. You say, now how, how, how does Revelation 11 verse 1 belong with chapter 10? Let me explain it. And now we're getting, why are we getting off into structure here? Well, it has to do with what we're talking about anyway, with the sanctuary. So let's use that excuse. Uh, <laughs> I, get, I get caught off on these tangents. I have, my, my mind is like a big pool of thoughts. 
you know, and I have the tendency to get distracted. But anyway, uh, where were we? Okay, chapter, chapter 11, verse 1 belongs to chapter 10. Chapter 10 ends by speaking about the little book that John ate, sweet in his mouth, bitter in his stomach, and then the chapter ends by saying, you must prophesy again. And then the very next verse says, arise, measure the temple. Let me ask you, what started immediately after the great disappointment in 1844? What started after the disappointment? The measuring of the temple. The investigative judgment. And so Revelation 11 verse 1 is telling you that after the disappointment, they would understand that now the temple was going to be measured. So 11.1 belongs with chapter 10. It's the climax of chapter 10. The same thing with Revelation 21 and verse 1. That's part of chapter 20. Because chapter 20, the last two verses, 14 and 15, speaks about the devil and his angels and the wicked cast into the lake of fire, which is the second death, and then it says, I saw new heavens and new earth. Revelation 21 verse 1. And then chapter 2 says the heavenly city descends. Now, it's out of order. Because the holy city descends before God makes a new heavens and new earth. Before He destroys the wicked. So what happens is Revelation chapter 20 and verse, uh, 21 and verse 2 begins a new cycle. In fact, we're going to study the millennium. And you're going to see in practical terms the nuts and bolts of how to do this literary study. Revelation 20 verse 1 through Revelation 21 and verse 8 has four cycles, four repetitive cycles where the same material is repeated four times but with a different emphasis. The first emphasis is upon Satan and the earth. The second emphasis is upon the saints. The third emphasis is upon the wicked and the fourth emphasis is on what life is going to be in the holy city. And when you take, when you study each cycle, and then you put them all together, you have a complete picture. If you try to read Revelation 20 verse 1 through 21 8 in chronological order, you will be so goofed up, you don't know what planet you're on. Because it goes back and forth, it goes in cycles. And unless, you know, I, I, Interpreting symbols is important, the sanctuary is important, but I've come to the conclusion that the most important thing in studying Bible prophecy is understanding how things are put together. And what amazes me is when I read the writings of Ellen White, she has it all together. <laughs> you know, I study the structure and I say, this fits here, this fits here. Then I read Gate Goddard and she says, well, this is where this fits and this is where this fits. And the little old lady didn't have a Ph.D. She had two and a half years of primary education. Hello. You don't have to be King Solomon to understand Bible prophecy. All you need is to pray to the Lord for enlightenment. And make up your mind that you're going to sit down and you're going to study it. Because you have to, you have to pray and you have to sweat. You know, some people only say, only pray, and then God will give you an enlightening thought. 
Well, God will give you enlightening thoughts, but God does not condone laziness. Jesus said, search the scriptures. And search the scriptures is different than reading them. There's too many people who read the scriptures. And not enough people who search the scriptures. So, the sanctuary is vitally important, is it not? Now, that was point number one. <laughs> is that clear, that first point there? Okay. Number two. Each major section of Revelation has a sanctuary introduction, which not only clarifies when the vision historically begins, but also the direction toward which the vision is flowing. In other words, the introductory vision gives you the beginning point and the ending point of the series. I'll give you an example. Revelation 3 verse 21. We're on point 2. We're doing well. Revelation chapter 3 verse 21. This is the, this is the concluding verse to the churches and is the introductory verse to the seals. In other words, it concludes the previous section and it introduces the next section. So Revelation 3 verse 21, Jesus says, To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat with my Father on his throne. What points of time do we have in this verse? We've got two points of time. The first point of time is when Jesus overcame and sat with His Father on His throne. The second point of time is when we will sit with Jesus on His throne. What do you have in between? The seals. Are you with me? So in other words, this one verse is the introduction to the next section, and it also gives you the ending point of the next section. I'll give you another example. Revelation 8. Revelation 8, the introductory sanctuary vision. And verse 2. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Then another angel, having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense, that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. Let me ask you, is intercession open at this point? Is the censer interceding? It is interceding. Absolutely. Verse 4, And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints. See, the, the incense and the prayers are two separate things. Related, but separate. With the prayers of the saints, ascended before God from the angel's hand. But now something's going to happen. What's going to happen? Verse 5, Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it to the earth. What does that mean? He took the censer and threw it to the earth. 
there's no longer any intercession. The censer is not being presented before the Lord. And notice what the result is. And there were noises, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. At the end of the trumpet series, you're going to find those same phenomena when the trumpets come to an end. So this introductory scene is giving you two points of time. The trumpets begin with the intercession of Jesus. And they end when intercession ceases. She gets the point? Now, let's go to this material. Let's go to point number three now. There is a sanctuary progression in the book of Revelation. From the court to the holy place, and from the holy to the most holy place. When the ministry of the most holy place concludes at the end of the thousand years, then Jesus will physically return to the court from whence He ascended to heaven. You caught that point? Number four. Each heavenly event in Revelation has a correspondingly earthly repercussion and reflection. Jesus does nothing in heaven in a vacuum. In other words, the work of Jesus in heaven is reflected by His people on earth. While Jesus is doing His work in heaven, His people are preparing on earth. Number five, the church on earth is a spiritual reflection of the literal heavenly temple. Number six, I have included the scapegoat and the cutting off of the wicked. Do you remember what would happen with people who did not uh, uh, sympathize with the high priest on the Day of Atonement? Leviticus 23 says they would be cut off from among the people. So you have two things that happen on the Day of Atonement. Number one, the sins that had been confessed and forgiven previously by the blood of the Lord's goat were placed on the head of the scapegoat. And then he was sent out to the wilderness to a non-inhabited land and the wicked were cut off. Do we find that in Revelation? Absolutely. At the second coming of Jesus, what happens to the wicked? They're cut off. What happens to the devil? He's bound to the earth like the scapegoat. And so I have included the scapegoat and the cutting off of the wicked after the thousand years as part of the most holy place ministry because these events are included in the Day of Atonement chapters uh, of Leviticus 16 and 23. Finally, number seven, at the present, there exists a gulf between heaven and earth. Right? There's a gulf between heaven and earth. Christ is physically present in a literal heavenly temple. He is also spiritually present with His spiritual temple on earth. Let me ask you something. You know, I travel a lot. And uh, I spend a lot of time away from my wife. And after I've been gone for a few days, by the way, she's with me in spirit. But after several days, I long to be with her. Physically. 
Is it different to be with someone in spirit than to be with them physically? So is Jesus with us in spirit? Do you think He's happy about that? No! He doesn't want to be only with us spiritually, He wants to be with us physically. That's the whole purpose of the sanctuary service. Just, I'm going to prepare a place. All of this is the preparation of a place. All his work in the sanctuary. And while He prepares the place for us, we prepare for the place. <laughs> On earth. We do a parallel work to the work that Jesus does in heaven. On earth. We shine like the candelabra. We assimilate the bread. We present our prayers to Him. We enter with Him into the most holy place. See, we sympathize with His work. But the goal of this whole thing is that where I am, you may be also. And so He is also spiritually present with His spiritual temple on earth, that is the church. The goal of salvation history is to join the physical and spiritual realities at the end. So that Jesus and His people can not only experience spiritual fellowship, but physical fellowship as well. The sanctuary service illustrates the steps which Jesus must take so that He and His people can live together in fellowship in a perfect universe that has been freed from the curse of sin. Wow! So is the sanctuary a vital thing in the book of Revelation? Amen. It's one of the principles of prophetic interpretation. That's why I included it as a separate principle, because it is vital in understanding where the book of Revelation is trending to. It's not merely academic, folks. It's a matter of salvation. To understand, to follow Jesus by faith. And I repeat once again, Israel could not, could not see into the tent. So what God did was He gave them, he gave them a description of what went on in the tent. So that, so that when the priest went in every day to offer incense, morning and evening, they would gather outside. It says in Luke, uh, in Luke when Zechariah was offering the incense, the people were outside praying. And, and they were outside and they were praying. They were saying, ah, Zechariah right now is presenting the incense in the sanctuary. See, they were doing the reality, and in the sanctuary was the symbol. And then when, when, the, when the high priest went in to light the lamps morning and evening, that was the high priest that did that. The people would say, oh, he went in to fill the lamps with oil because the lamp had to give light. It was the only source of light in the sanctuary was the, was the candlestick. And so they were to understand and say, following, and they're following the, the high priest, they're saying, he's lighting the sanctuary with the oil. And so, give me oil in my lamp. Keep me burning. As the song says, give me your spirit so that I can shine. See, there's a spiritual implication in our personal life. And the showbread. Every Sabbath, the showbread was changed and put fresh, just like we get a fresh sermon every Sabbath. And so when the priest went in to put the bread, the people were saying, this is the Holy Sabbath. 
It's the day to get fresh bread, spiritually speaking. And so the sanctuary had profound significance, not only because of what Jesus does in heaven, but it has a profound spiritual significance for us on earth. And sometimes we miss that because we talk about temple geography. And we're able to explain, oh yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, the table of showbread, it measured so much and it had 12 loaves of bread on it. And, you know, and the incense was a special kind of incense, you know. And uh, Aaron, he would light the lamps morning and evening and he would make sure that they had oil. And you had the Ark of the Covenant with the law inside. Folks, the reason for the law inside the Ark of the Covenant is because God wants it to be in, in the Ark of the Heart. It does us no good to have it in the ark up there. Jesus says, I want the ark to be down there. Spiritually. And so in that way, the sanctuary becomes relevant. Not only geographically, but it becomes relevant to our own spiritual walk with Jesus. And so what we'll do in our class, our first class, when we reconvene, is we're going to go to this document and we're going to go step by step through what we just covered in the chart with Bible verses and quotations from the Spirit of Prophecy so that we're sure that it is absolutely crystal clear and that it will cause an impact in our lives and we can share it with other people so that they can have this wonderful experience. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.